0: be to God. I want to confess something to you this morning. It's juicy, right? You start the sermon with a pastoral confession. It's not that big of a confession, but as a teenager and a young adult, I hated the verse that Irene just read. Oh, maybe hate's too strong a word. I really did not like John 3.16, really did not like it at all. Not that I spent very much time reading the Gospel of John and thinking about what it meant for myself, nor did I have a clue about the story that surrounds it. It comes right after Jesus and Nicodemus meet at night. I just didn't like the verse in itself, mostly because of the way other Christian people used it. I thought either you were a John 3.16 kind of Christian or you were not, and I was not. Spoiler alert, I no longer think this way. Now I'm a big fan of John 316, big fan, and John 317. We'll get to that in a minute. But I was not a big fan of it for a long time. I don't know how often this happens anymore, but there was a period of time, many of you will remember, when you would see John 316 all over the place. Right? You would see it on posters and banners, at, at sporting events, on TV, plus car bumper stickers, plus t-shirts, plus bracelets, just it was everywhere. And first of all, this confused me because I knew that the reason people were doing it, were plastering it all over the place, was so it could be an evangelism tool, like a way to help people fall in love with Jesus. But it confused me because if all you show are the words John and the numbers 3 and 16 and not the actual text of the verse, how are people who aren't already Christian going to know what you mean? I mean, I know plenty of people who come to church regularly who have a hard time looking stuff up in the Bible. They need to use the table of contents, which is totally fine. That's what the table of contents is there for. But how is somebody who doesn't already believe in God and know the Bible going to know where to find a Bible, let alone know what to do with it when they see the words John 3.16? So thinking about this phenomenon, it it caused me to wonder how this even got started in the first place, this public display of John 3.16. So I looked it up. Wikipedia, you know, tells you all the things. And the guy that we can credit for making the public display of John 3.16 most famous is named Roland Stewart. He was also known as the Rainbow Man because he wore this big rainbow-colored wig when he held up his sign, John 3.16, And he was pretty often found in the stands of NFL football games. That's where he started in the late 80s. Now, over the years, he's garnered many copycats, and maybe even today still you can see people doing it. Unfortunately for Stewart, holding up that banner, John 316, that wasn't quite enough, so he went on to set off stink bombs in newspaper offices and public gatherings because he wanted to send the message, God thinks this stinks. So clever. Now, because he has so many copycats, you might not have noticed, but the Rainbow Man has not been seen in public since the early 90s. He's serving three life sentences in prison for kidnapping. For God so loved the world. (laughs) He got his message and his method a little mixed up. But Stuart wasn't the only one who wanted to tell the world about John 3.16. Has anybody ever been to an In-N-Out burger? Anyone? Like one person? Okay. Well, <laughs> it's because we live in Nebraska. They're a famous Southern California fast food chain. They're, they're in more than just Southern, Southern California now. But they print a Bible verse in several locations on their packaging, including John 3.16. Not the verse, just John 3.16. They put it on the inside of the bottom rim of the soda cups. So if you do ever go to In-N-Out Burger, get a soda, lift it up, On the inside of the rim, you're going to see John 3.16. Now, is this hurting anyone? No. Is it helping anyone? Are people finding out about the amazing love of God because they glance at the bottom inside rim of their soda cup? I have a hard time believing that they are. So this kind of random displaying of the verse in the world that that was going to maybe revolutionize people's lives, that's, that's... kind of a problem for me. Pro tip, this is a tip. How do people come to know the saving love of God? Through relationships. 99% of the time it's through a relationship with another disciple of Jesus who cares enough about some person to know them and talk to them and help them and encourage them to get to know God. Now, we don't save people, of course. God does the saving work. God does the healing work. God does the redemptive work. But we get to be the conduit. We get to be the doorway. We get to be the introduction when we have a relationship with our friends and our neighbors, not something hidden on the inside of a soda cup. But that was not my only problem with this phenomenon, with John 3.16. The other problem was that I felt like people have used this verse as a sort of weapon They've used it as a weapon. They say, this verse shows how much God gave for you. God gave his only son. Don't you feel bad about that? Don't you realize all the terrible stuff that you have done that made that necessary? You should feel really guilty. And you should ask God into your heart to fix it. So believe in him, have eternal life. And if you choose not to, well, all you and your bad stuff, you're going straight to hell. And that's the way people have used John 3.16 too often. So let me just say that that is not a healthy way to view the gospel. It's not a healthy way to view our relationship with God because it's trading on fear. Believe in God or else you will regret it. Be afraid of punishment. I just don't believe that's the way God operates. And I know this because... Number one, scripture tells me that God is love. First John tells us God is love. And number two, scripture tells me that perfect love casts out fear. So yes, the love that God has for us, for the world, is meant to change us, but not to to induce fear, rather to dispel it. Do you remember that four-sentence summary of the gospel that I shared with you last week? I love you. I'm with you, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, you can come home. If we can't explain to other people and to ourselves who God is inside of that summary, then I don't think we've captured the gospel of Jesus very well at all. Now, we're here in week four of our series on the attributes of God, God is. We've explored how God is holy and how God is just and how God is merciful, and today, God is love. Next week we've got one more. God is good and that's going to plunge us directly into the problem of evil, so come back next week for that fun trip. Okay. God is love. This is not a surprise to you. This is something we talk about a whole lot. Something we repeat again and again especially to our children. It's something that is encapsulated really well in the two verses we heard today from John. Let's just Hear those again, and I just invite you to hear them with with fresh ears. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is really beautiful. Beautiful. And two important things about this short verse, John 3.16. First, the word so. We tend to read, God so loved the world. And we think this is about how much God loved the world. It's about the depth or the quantity of God's love. Like, God loved the world so very, very much. And that if God had loved the world a little bit less, God wouldn't have done this. But that's not the intent of the Greek. John isn't making a comment about how big God's love is but instead the manner in which God loves. So a better translation for this would be, God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son. Like, it's the natural consequence. It's the method. It's the path by which God's love came to the world. Secondly, then the word gave, Usually in the Gospel of John, the author uses the word sent. If you read through John, you're going to see over and over again that the writer says Jesus was sent by God, sent. But here in chapter 3, he uses a different word. He uses the word give, pointing out that this is a gift. Jesus is a gift given to the world. So God gave the gift of a son to the world to demonstrate God's love for the world. Jesus is an outflow of God's love. And sometimes Christian people act like God does anything but love the world. Sometimes Christians act like God must hate the world. Or at least be really, really mad at the world. Sometimes we act like what we read in Scripture is, for God was so disgusted with the world that he sent his only Son to clean things up and make humanity tolerable again. Now, the Scripture says we were perishing, but it doesn't say that God was killing us. I mean, we don't actually need punishment from God for us to be perishing. Humans do a really good job of destroying themselves, ourselves, all by ourselves. We don't need God to get involved. War, fighting, jealousy, greed, selfish ambition, deceit, the like. We can perish all by ourselves. And God knows this. And God has compassion over this. And because God loves us, God is not willing to let us self-destruct. And so God sends us a savior. Bidden by love, filled by love, motivated by love, carrying love to show us a new way to live. To save us from ourselves. God acting through Jesus was not motivated by hate, but by despair. God is not furious at us. God is afraid of losing us. Let me say that again. God is not furious at us. God is afraid of losing us. So a savior. So a son. So a gift born of eternal love. Now, this is actually a really important decision, I think, in our own hearts for us to choose if we believe that God was motivated by hate or disgust in giving the gift of Jesus, or if God was motivated out of compassion and despair and love. It's an important choice for how we understand who God is, for how we feel about God, for how we relate to God, for how we pray to God. It affects how we understand ourselves. Are we disgusting people who deserve to be punished? Or are we lost and we need to be found? It's also crucial because it affects how we relate to other people. If we believe that God hates the world, that God hates other people, if we believe that God is so disgusted with the world and with other people, then we're likely to feel free to hate or be disgusted by other people too. And that allows us to dismiss them and belittle them and judge them and berate them and ignore them and exclude them and do a whole lot of things that we see people doing in the world, but that are far from the way of Jesus. So if instead we believe that God acts first and acts only out of love, that God has been attached and crazy in love with humanity no matter what we do, if we believe that God was motivated to save us because God wanted to bind up and fix what God cherishes, then we will be open to love and cherish other people no matter what they do. Loving other people despite their failings. It doesn't mean that we don't care if they hurt themselves or others, but it means that we act first and always out of love, and we never let them forget how important and how precious and how lovable they are. God is love. Everything God does is motivated by love. And remember that God is all the things that God is all the time, so God is not sometimes loving and other times just. God is not sometimes holy and other times merciful. God is all those things together all the time, holy and just and merciful and also full of love. Everything God does is motivated by love. Now my hope today is just to remind you of that truth and to hope that you'll feel it, that you feel it in your heart, that you'll feel it deep down in your bones. If you don't, if it hasn't been made real to you in your life, the fullness of God's love, my ask today is that you take a moment today, this week, take a moment to ask God, to pray to God, to reveal God's love to you. That is a prayer that God will honor. Now for some of us, it might be harder to know and accept the full reality of God's deep, deep love, especially if we have not been particularly well loved by some of the people in our lives, by our parents or a spouse. If we've been hurt or betrayed by others, it can be a stumbling block to trusting the love of God, but God's love is the most trustworthy thing in the whole world. It's consistent, it's ever flowing, it's ever directed toward God's children's good, toward us. And so if you need to feel that love for the first time or you need to feel it refreshed in your life, I hope that you will pray about it, that you will pray to feel it in your heart, that you will pray to know it in your soul, that you will even get down on your knees if you need to and ask God to help you know and trust the love that God has for the world, the love that God has for you. And then rise up from that prayer. And share as much of the love of God with the world as you can. There's nothing better for us to do in response to God's love than love other people in the way that God loves us. And to remind us, just to remind us what that godly love looks like, I just want to close by reading for all of us again 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul tells us what the love of God looks like in a human life. He says love is patient and love is kind." And love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. Thanks be to God. Amen.